Isn't it wonderful to sometimes just spend time together with fellow believers and just worship Him? That's why we're here. We're not here to put a mark on anything to say, well, I was there on that day. So God, you got to kind of let me in. We're not here today to impress anybody. We're not here today really to even get anything. A lot of people will say, well, I didn't get a thing out of that worship service. Well, pardon me, I didn't know we were worshiping you, right? (laughs) We are here to give to Him. And I think one of the wonderful ways in which we can do that is just to open up our hearts like we did just a second ago and just sing to Him. You know, I have these little grandchildren now, uh, six. One will be born in May, but he's already kicking. We know that. He's going to be Titus. This is going to be his name. And I have these six little grandkids. And my son, who's the oldest of our two children, Jacob, and of course, Rebecca, he and his wife, when they had their first child, first grandkid, figured that they would help our grandchildren in coming up with names. So they came up with a name for me. Now, my wife, Pam, got a pretty cool name. Her name is Ma'am. My great-grandfather Trotter called his wife Ma'am most of their married life. So that's pretty good. You know what they picked for me? Geese. Out of all the names that they could have picked, that's short for geezer, so you'll know. (laughs) Geese. I have an evangelist friend, though, that had a worse name. His grandchildren called him Kaka. So I'm telling you, they actually did. But you know, here's the deal about that. When I hear geese, boy, that's one of the sweetest sounds in all the world. On Sunday, some of you have seen Rebecca's two kids will come running up to me and they'll start yelling, geese, geese, geese. And they'll grab me by the legs. And I'm here talking with you and shaking hands, you know, and they've got me by the legs. But there's nothing better. There's nothing better all the world. Now just imagine the heart of God when we sing how great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Friends, you know why the world is so messed up? They don't know how great God really is. And they need to see our great and mighty God. Well, for now working on first few months of three years, I've been here serving with Paul. And Paul and I have been longtime friends. Most of you know that. I, I knew of him before I actually met him in Scottsdale, Arizona, as a part of the uh, uh, challenge of the Johnson Amendment and the IRS. And I met him there, and we were just immediately good friends. Came back here, and he asked me to come to Reclaiming and uh, became a part of the leadership team of Reclaiming America for Christ. And Paul and I just, we've hit it off, and we've served together for so many years. We now believe that God really does want us to help plant Liberty Churches Almost on a daily basis, but if not daily, I can tell you on a weekly basis, I have someone call me, email me, or actually ask me to my face, Dan, do you know where there's a church like Fairview? And then they'll name the area or the town. I just had an email two days ago from a man in Arkansas who said, Dan, can you tell me where there is a liberty-style church 
in Arkansas. And I said, you know, there may be some, but I don't know of one. I'm from western Arkansas. My family's still over there, still active in church. And I don't know of one liberty-style church in western Arkansas. Lots of churches, probably filled with good people. No liberty churches. That's why Paul is in Orlando today, because we believe that that ministry down there is just as important as what we're doing here. They, Sunday after Sunday, join us online. They are a part of our services. You have a sister church. You have a, an extension of, of, of your body, congregation down there in Orlando. And Paul and I, though we don't have any kind of ideas of grandeur or anything like that, we hope that there will be liberty churches maybe someday all over the country. So when someone contacts us and says, hey, Dan, Paul, can you point me to a Liberty Church in Little Rock, Arkansas? We can say, oh, yeah, we know where three are. Dan, is there a Liberty Church in Denver, Colorado? Oh, yeah, here, here it is. See, that's what we want to be able to do. We don't want to take over anybody's church. They might not even have to change anything. Just as long as they are working with us and, and see where we believe the church needs to go, man, we want to hook arms with them. And so that's why Paul and Cindy are there today. Great things, I believe, are happening underneath this very rocky ocean that we're sailing on right now. Now then, Paul and I are unique in another way, and that is that we talk about things from this pulpit that most preachers won't touch to, I think, their shame. We, we have become controversial, and we never wanted to be controversial. We have developed a bit of a reputation, a little bit of a name, but I'm not after a name. Names mean nothing. The only name that matters is the one we were singing about a while ago, the name above all names. But why would a guy like Paul Blair or a guy like me, why would we preach on these controversial topics? Because we get a lot of controversy that swirls around us, a lot of criticism. Oh, most of you do not criticize us. But I promise you, criticism. So much so that the church where I pastored for 23 years in Yukon, a very large church of over 1,000 people, finally decided that had all that they could take and nicely showed me the door and pushed me through it. Wasn't a scandal, wasn't anything like that. They just didn't want to take that kind of a stand. I've had people since then contact from that church and say, Dan, would you help me in this election? Our church isn't saying a thing about any of this. Help me to know who to vote for. Would you help me with this issue? They, they're not saying anything. There's a great cost to doing some of the things that Paul and I do. What would, what did, what would, what would cause a preacher to go down to the Capitol and wave a musket around from the War of Independence down there? I mean, if you'll notice, you look, they put a... They put a plastic strap on it so I wouldn't fire it. I told them, I said, guys, look, if I was going on a shooting spree, it wouldn't be with a flintlock musket. <laughs> I mean, that's the last weapon I would choose, right? But what would cause a, a person to do that? What would cause me to get on the s- steps of the south side of the Capitol in a, in a pretty good uh, uh, gathering and literally uh, take on the U.S. Supreme Court? And call them for what they are. What, what, what would cause a guy like me to, while I'm pastoring a church of a thousand people, be down in what is the basement, it's just the first floor of the Capitol, speaking at an abolition of abortion, not pro-life, abolition. 
This is murder and we ought to stop it. What, what, what would cause me uh, to, to do that? And there I am railing into that microphone. What would cause me, with more than enough on my hands and on my plate, pastoring a church of a thousand people, traveling around doing the black robe, to run for the legislature and remain a pastor and serve in the legislature? What would cause me to do that? Because most preachers just don't do stuff like that. And then, insult of all insults, when I was at Liberty Church, some came to me and said, Dan, you need to pray about this. I said, I already have. And God said, no. They said, no, you're not talking the same God we are and over and over and over we prayed and I ran for governor of all things that was not in my bucket list I want to be governor in fact when I walked away from the legislature it was my third term I was unopposed I had no opponent I mean I was in like Flynn even I can win a race like that I don't have an opponent and I walked away but it wasn't because I'm a quitter it's not because I'm a coward. It's because I couldn't take it. You say, well, you mean the pace, Dan? Oh, no, it had nothing to do with the pace. Because they intentionally slow stuff down and kill good stuff. I couldn't take the hypocrisy of all of these so-called Christian conservatives that either do, do not understand the role of governance or they have just simply compromised and they're betraying the voters who sent them there because, see, I'd go see those voters sometimes. They'd say, oh, well, you must know my rep or my state senator. It's so-and-so. Aren't they such a good person? And I would have to just bite my lip to say, no, they're really not. No, they're actually not. And then for years, what would propel a guy like me to put on an 18th century uniform and drag that equipment all over creation, drive 11 hours one way just to speak in a church just to set it all up, do the deal, tear it all down, load it up. Then the next day, turn around and come right back here. I'll be leaving in just a few weeks to go to Orlando twice. Two different trips. Paul and I are a part of all these things. What, what would propel us to do this kind of thing? I mean, Dan, Paul, can't you get enough to do here? I mean, you just, you just bent on this? Well, yes, we are, but not for the reason some might think. I started this, preparing this message in my mind and in my heart a few weeks ago. And actually this message has taken a turn because of some things that have happened in the last few days. It's still the message, but there's another part to it that I can't do today that I intended to. So I'll have to come back to you with a second part of this maybe in a couple of weeks. Paul will be back with us next week. But I want to I go this way in the first installment in this message today because of some things that have happened that I think we have to respond to. Now, we cannot allow current events to drive our theology. Our theology must be driven by God's Word and truth. But we must take God's Word and apply it to current events or it's just dry theology. There's a lot of Baptist churches that are really straight doctrinally, like a shotgun barrel. They're really straight, but they're just as empty. And I don't want to be empty. If we can't take God's word and apply it to where we're living today, then how can it help us much? So that's what I want to do today. I want to preach a message, the first part of this whole two-message series. Now, I didn't plan for it being that way. But today I want to preach this message entitled, Standing Up to Tyrants. 
On June the 5th, 1989, as you know, in Tiananmen Square, China, a man that he's calling the tank man now, no one knows who he was. Finally, I think they may have discovered his identity, stood up to a long row of tanks. Those are just four of the many that were there. Every time those tanks would try to move to go around him, he would step in front of them. Now, you might stand in front of a tank in America, but you don't do that to the red communist Chinese army. They'll run right over you. But they didn't. They couldn't. The whole world saw it. That one single man down there in the left-hand corner standing there facing down those massive war machines. He's standing up to a tyrant's what he's doing. And because of things that have happened over the last few days and weeks, and I just believe that we have to revisit the idea that maybe we're entering a world where church men and church women are going to have to do more than talk about standing up against tyranny. We're actually going to have to begin to stand up against tyrants. What does that look like? It's never a comfortable thing to do. You're often misunderstood. You're normally up against incredible odds. And sometimes you go to jail. Sometimes you die. So what does it mean to stand up to tyrants? Well, it's actually in our American DNA. I mean, if you go back to April the 19th, 1775, those some 70 or 80 men from Lexington stood there, led by Deacon John Parker and preacher Jonas Clark, there in what is called today Lexington Green, but at that time you'd have called it his churchyard. It was the meeting house in Lexington. They were standing in the churchyard, holding their weapons, probably not intending to fire them. They just wanted to stand up to the tyrant because there's some 800 British redcoats staring them in the faces with loaded muskets. And they were standing up to the tyrant. There's a verse of Scripture that all of us know well. It's out of Ephesians 6, verse 13, where Paul says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all... To stand. Now most of us read that passage of scripture and we say, oh yes, we need to be in for the spiritual fight. We need to pray. We need to read our Bibles. We need to attend church. We need to share the gospel when we can. Yeah, the spiritual fight. Well, it is a spiritual fight. But sometimes that spiritual fight bleeds over into the flesh and blood. And we actually have to be present and accounted for in the fight. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants any kind of confrontation. Running for governor, being in the legislature, brought me into all kinds of confrontations, quite frankly, I was not comfortable with and did not enjoy. But the time is coming when we Americans better decide what it looks like to stand up to a tyrant. Now here's a man who just did this. This is Arthur Pawlowski. He's a Canadian pastor who actually lived behind the Iron Curtain in Poland. He knows firsthand what communist tyranny looks like. He now pastors in Calgary, Alberta. He not only pastors, but he operates a street ministry 
He uh, has been known as a firebrand preacher. Always out there kind of on the fringe, on the edge, confronting the evil of his land. First and foremost is his message of Jesus and the fact that Christ is the only hope. But that liberty must be treasured by people or the gospel will always be driven underground. Last weekend, April the 3rd, in his church there in Calgary, they were having a worship service, an Easter service, when a number of masked policemen and women broke into his church, just broke in and interrupted the service. What crime was the pastor committing? Oh, he had too many people in his church. He wasn't even supposed to be having church. They weren't properly distanced and they weren't wearing masks. I want you to watch this video that was taken by the pastor and you'll hear him talking. It's him that's talking to these police. This is what standing up to a tyrant looks like. Please get out. Get out of this property. Immediately get out. Get out of this property immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out. Out of this property immediately until you come back with a warrant. Out. 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 Out of this property. Immediately out. Immediately go out and don't come back. Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Okay. Not a word. Out of this out of this property. Immediately out. I don't care what you have to say. Out. Out. Out of this property, you Nazis. Out. Out. Gestapo is not allowed here. Immediately, Gestapo is not allowed. Out. Do you understand English? Get out of this property. Go. So go. Go. And don't come back without a warrant. Out, Nazi. Out. Out. You understand? Nazis are not welcome here. Out. And don't come back without a warrant. Do not come back without a warrant. You understand that? You're not welcome here. Nazis are not welcome here. Gestapo is not welcome here. Do not come back, you Nazi psychopaths. Unbelievable, sick, evil people. Intimidating people in a church during the Passover. You Gestapo, Nazi, communist, fascists. Don't you dare coming back here. Can you imagine those psychopaths? Passover. The holiest Christian festival in a year. And they're coming to intimidate Christians during the holiest festival? Unbelievable. What is wrong with those sick psychopaths? It's beyond me. That's a man of God. Now, that's what standing up to a tyrant looks like. Now, you know, oddly enough, of course, Canada has been far more restrictive than things have been here in America, but not in some places in America 
as we will see in just a moment. But you know, oddly enough, there was a time in America when even corporations like Disney understood this, prin- this principle. The principle that freedom of religion is sacrosanct. In fact, watch this little clip from 1973. I think you'll recognize it. Now take it easy, Friar. I'm just doing my duty. Collecting taxes for that arrogant, greedy, ruthless, no good Prince John. Listen, Friar, you're mighty preachy, and you gonna preach your neck right into a hangman's noose. Get out of my church! Ow! 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 Oh, dear me. Do you want taxes? I'll give you taxes? Oh, give it to him, give it to him, give it to him, Friar! <laughs> Can you imagine Disney making a cartoon like that today, Robin Hood? If they did, that scene would be deleted, I promise you. See, there was a time when even these woke corporations got it. They understood. But we live in a different day, and we better wake up to it. Just north of our border, it's not just pastors like Palaski. It's this pastor here, James Coates, pastor of the Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta. He's just a pastor, just like me, just like Paul. His church, not a big mega church. Look at it. I mean, it's not a huge building. You're not talking about multiplied thousands of people attending his church. And yet, can you believe that because of the COVID lockdowns and the mass regulations, that pastor was arrested and thrown in jail and imprisoned for 30 days? 30 days. Now, thankfully, he was recently released. And he said while he was in prison, the inmates would come up to him and say, Hey, listen, can I talk with you? Could you pray with me? Could you help me? He said, I had such a ministry in that jailhouse that when they released me, as I turned to look back, looking through the windows of their cells were these inmates waving, some of them weeping. So what they intended for evil, God meant for good. But did you know, yeah, that's okay. But did you know that now that that pastor's out of jail, the Canadian government has actually locked down his church. And this is a photograph from the surveillance cameras at their church where the the authorities are erecting a fence around his church and locking it down. Would you have ever thought that you would have seen this happen? You say, well, thankfully it's not in America. Have you looked at the U.S. Capitol lately? Friend, it is just a little step from their putting a fence around themselves to protect themselves from us until they put fences around us to protect themselves from us. I'm telling you, we're just not very far behind this whole thing. Now you say, well, Dan, you and Paul are kind of firebrands. You know, you guys are lightning rods. You, you're kind of spoiling for a fight. Actually, standing up to, to tyrants is with, well within Christian history. For instance, consider this story. This is Theodosius the Great, a Roman emperor. In 390, because of a riot that had happened in Thessalonica, that's the book. I mean, that's the place where the first and second Thessalonians are written to, right, by Paul. There had been a gathering. They called it a riot. Kind of lost control of it. And a Roman official 
who was the captain of the Roman guard in that city, Botharic, was killed. Well, Theodosius, though he claimed to be a Christian, had a fiery, fiery temper and he blew up and he had some 7,000 men, women, and children put to death in Thessalonica. You want to think about that. In retaliation. Well, there was a pastor in those days by the name of Ambrose. He's known as the Bishop of Milan, Italy. He was one of the early church fathers. Ambrose immediately called upon Theodosius to repent of his evil and that if he truly was a Christian, that he should fall on his knees and get right with God. Well, Theodosius decided to go to Ambrose's church. Ambrose, not knowing what those Roman authorities were going to do, literally, this is a fact of history, stood at the door of his church and refused entrance to the Roman emperor. This is in our DNA. Just jump forward to 2021 on April the 3rd in Calgary, Alberta, and you've got Pastor Paloski. In 399 A.D., this is a statue of John Christosom, one of the great early pastors in early Christianity. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. During this period of time, there was a kind of a viceroy in the Roman Empire. His name was Flavius Eutropius. He was like the vice emperor. And he and the emperor got crossways with each other, so much so that he feared for his life. He actually fled to John Christosom's church and begged for sanctuary, which Christosom extended to him. The Roman authorities came to Christosom's church and were going to physically drag Eutropius out of the church. And once again, the pastor of the church, this time John Christosom, stood in the doorway and wouldn't allow him. There have actually been many books written about this. It's a point of history. Now fast forward from the 4th century AD to our own founding. To the 18th century AD. You know I travel around telling the story of the pastors and the church's involvement in our war of independence. How those of that age understood that Christianity does not begin or end at the doors to the church. Men like Peter Muhlenberg, who was a, a Lutheran, was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, recommended by George Washington and Patrick Henry to be commissioned as a colonel, raising an 8th regiment out of Virginia, you know, stood in front of his congregation, pulled off his preaching robe, revealed the colonel's uniform. That's the whole bit that I do to open up the whole black robe presentation. At the battle of what we call Bunker Hill, Breeds in Bunker Hill, the famous painter John Trumbull painted one of those poignant moments. But remember, if you're familiar with the painting in the left-hand upper corner, you'll see that man right in there mixed in with those flags. Notice that he's wearing something around his neck. Well, those are preaching bands. That's a preacher's scarf that preachers in the 18th century wore. Whether you were Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, didn't matter, congregational, preachers all wore those. Well, why is he in this picture? Well, Painter Trumbull wanted everybody to know that preachers in the church played a prominent role. This is Pastor Samuel McClintock from New Hampshire. 
His family was so committed to liberty that by the time the war was over, three of their four sons had been killed. He wasn't the only preacher who was there. David Avery was there from Vermont in Avery's actual journal. He found a place up on the ramparts, the big dirt piles that the colonists had made there outside of Boston to protect themselves. He stood up on top of those so his men could see him and he lifted his hands toward heaven and he was praying during the battle, asking God to give them the victory. He could have been shot dead. But just imagine the inspiring view that was to those men. Here's that preacher. He's not back in the back somewhere behind a rock. He's out front. Or the Presbyterian preacher, James Caldwell from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, whose wife Hannah was killed by a British soldier when he jumped over the fence of their house and shot her through the window, hit her right in the chest and killed her. Caldwell helped to do his wife's funeral and then was called away to Springfield, New Jersey because they're fighting the British. And he's the one that went into the first Presbyterian church of Springfield, New Jersey, got the hymn books filled with Isaac Watts hymns and had his men tear the pages out and use them for wadding. And while they're fired away, he said, give them Watts, boys, put Watts into them. You see, this is in our national cultural DNA. Here's a painting depicting the role of preachers at that terrible winter in Valley Forge, 1777-78. Men like Peter Muhlenberg, who was a member of George Washington's staff, and a preacher out of uh, Hopewell, New Jersey, Joab Houghton, and other preachers were there, and they ministered to Washington and to the troops and helped to hold that disintegrating army together during those horrible years of exposure and privation. It was preachers who believed that they had a God-given responsibility to stand up to tyrants. Today we talk about it, but are we prepared to do it? You know, we've always taught young men and young ladies, if you don't decide beforehand what you're going to do when you find yourselves alone together when you're dating, it's too late to decide then. Because your emotions and your hormones are going to take over and you're going to sin. So you better decide beforehand what you're going to do so when you are faced with that situation, you already know. It's automatic. I submit to you today, friends, that unfortunately we may live in a time when we better decide what we're going to do. What are we ready to do? Now, what are we willing to talk about doing? What are we ready to do? My friend John Bennett who was just elected as the chair of the Republican Party for Oklahoma, couldn't have a better person there. I know that Jenny White was running. She would have been great as well, so no dig on her at all. I served in the legislature with John. You know what John does today? There's no such thing as an ex-Marine. There are always Marines. He's part of the special forces, and he'd always tell me when I'd ask him, what do you do? He said, I have to kill you. So I said, well, please don't tell me. <laughs> do you know what John does today? He pastors a church in Salisaw, Oklahoma. What in God's name is a Marine, ex-legislator, pastor in, in, in Salisaw, Oklahoma, doing now as chairman of the Republican Party? Because he believes that our Christianity does not begin or end at these doors. 
What will we do? Back in my days at Trinity, when they agreed with what I was about, there was an unwritten plan. I had some men come up to me and tell me, they said, Dan, you know what? We have a plan put together. I said, a plan for what? They said, well, if they break into the church and lock you up and lead you away in handcuffs, here's what we're going to do. As soon as they walk you out the door for preaching these things, one of us is going to get up and stand behind the pulpit and do our best to continue. And they'll probably lock us up too. So there's another guy on the list. And just as soon as they lead them away, the other guy comes right on up. And just one right after another. I just talked with that gentleman yesterday. A godly man. No longer at Trinity, but he's a godly man. What would you do? If some Sunday Paul's up here railing away, or I am, and they just break through the doors, they get past Brother Emmett and the others who are standing at the doors, and they just break through, and they come in here, and they begin to read some uh, oracle from some mayor or something, and come up here and handcuff us and lead us off. What would you do? Sit here with your mouth open and go, I would have never believed this could happen in America. Friend, get ready, it might. God, I pray it will not happen, but it could. What will you do? What does standing up to a tyrant look like? Well, not bending over and giving in. It doesn't look like that. There's a verse out of the Old Testament, as you can see. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Friend, we don't need to fear anybody but God. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. That's all he can do. You better fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in eternal hell. Now, I don't relish the idea of being arrested. I don't relish the idea of being shot or being hanged or being electrocuted or whatever it is or starved to death slowly or worked to death. I don't relish the thought of any of that stuff. And I'm like you. I'm allergic to pain and, and inconvenience. And I don't want any more than you do. But we must be willing to stand. Those guys that signed that declaration, they really did believe they were signing their death warrants. And had they lost the war, they would have been. What will you do? You say, well, you know, Dan, you're talking about Canada. Well, let me put it in a closer proximity. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In a pastor's church who's been arrested 33 times. At one time, he was under house arrest and couldn't get past the threshold of his front door. Right now, he's under parish arrest. Do you realize in Louisiana, because of the influence of the Catholic Church, instead of counties, they have parishes. He cannot get outside his parish. If he does, they'll drag him straight to jail. He told me, he pointed to to utility poles around their church. He said, damn, there are federal cameras on all of those from the FBI. They're watching us like crazy. He said, I guarantee you my house is bugged. They hear every word we say. So I was always careful to add certain sentences that uh, I wanted them to hear while I was there. You know what his crime is? He's as law-abiding as a Christian fellow as you'll ever meet. 
different denomination, different ways, but I'm telling you, inside of that old heart is the heart of the Lord. I've never met Tony Spell. I'd heard a little bit about him, but I'm telling you, I was with him five minutes and felt like I'd known him for my whole life. His crime, he wouldn't shut his church down. He offended a homosexual police officer in town because he wouldn't shut his church down. That homosexual, by the way, was finally caught up in other things and is now in prison. But they launched this special attack on him, and he's still up to here in court cases. In fact, he was supposed to go to court, and they said, well, now, Pastor Spell, you'll have to wear your mask. He said, well, then I ain't going. And he wouldn't even go to court to his own hearing. That's his crime. That's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's not just in Canada. So very quickly then, let's talk about what we need to think about in standing to a tyrant. First of all, peace is always the preference. You're familiar with this verse. I've used it many times since I've been here at Fairview. You've read it many times. Paul says, if it is possible in Romans 12, 18, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I'm telling you, I just want to be left alone. What about you? See, I don't want to dictate how people in Massachusetts live. I don't want to tell people in Vermont how they ought to believe. I don't want to tell Pennsylvania that you've got to do it this way. You've got to have me come up there and speak. You've got to have me do it. I don't want to tell them how to live, but I sure don't want them telling me how to live either. So I'll get along with you till you want to fight. And I'll even hesitate on the fight for a while. I may not even be a good fighter, but I'm telling you there comes a time when we must say no. No further. So peace is always the preference. Secondly, justice is the demand. Now, I'm not talking about woke social justice. There's no such thing. There's either justice or injustice. And by the way, men don't define what justice is. God does. God sets the standards. So when I talk about justice, I'm talking about justice from God's point of view. For instance, Isaiah 10, 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. God help those people who have either started or facilitated the murder of these pre-born babies now well over 60 million. Some of those people right now, I'm telling you, I'm not their judge, but they are burning in hell. God help those people. Making these laws that you can't go to church and persecuting Tony Spell there in Baton Rouge. When he's done more to help that community than probably anybody else and maybe almost everybody else combined. Who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice to take that or take what is right from the poor of my people that widows may be their prey. And that they may rob the fatherless. You see, the, the, the bad guys, the bullies, always pick on the weakest and the most uh, uh, downtrodden first. But they never stop there. Friend, I'm telling you, the church is in their crosshairs. And it's not just in the field, it's in the very bullseye. That's what these people are about. Vice President Kamala Harris is... <laughs> Every time she's asked some question, I think she's half hyena. I, I don't know what in the world. 
Have you noticed every time they ask you, hey, <laughs> what's your address? <laughs> Wake up, girl. Let me tell you what's in her crosshairs as far as her targeting. It's the church. It's the gospel. This is why Home Depot could stay open. Walmart could stay open. But not the church. You had to shut down dental clinics, but you can sure keep those abortion mills running day and night. Good God, what's the matter with us? And yet you hear but a whimper from the Republican Party in Oklahoma. Maybe with John there, that'll change. There's many other verses. Psalm 89, 14 and 15. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face, God. Notice, by the way, how justice to God is always linked to righteousness. See, they'll talk about justice, justice. We want justice. But they don't want any righteousness. You can allow a three-year-old to decide if they're a girl or a boy. But you can't open your church. What is the matter with us that we roll over so easily and go, In God's mind, justice is connected to righteousness. It's not the only verse. Psalm 106.3 Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Just because a court says it's just doesn't mean it is. That godless Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. says that murdering preborn babies is okay. It's not. I don't care what they say. It's not. They say that it's okay to redefine marriage to be anything you want it to be. Well, I don't care what they say. They're wrong. They didn't invent it and they can't define it. Got so far ahead of myself, I jumped past the last verse. Dead gummit. <laughs> Proverbs 21.3 to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Look at that. Notice the justice and righteousness. Could it be that God knew that someday AOC would be woke? Yeah, so he connects justice with righteousness. Oh, oh, never mind. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus told the Pharisees, you've done all this tithing, but you left the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith undone. You should have done that other and done this too. And then last of all, interposition is the call. See, peace is the preference. It's the preference. Justice is the demand. Interposition is the call. Now, what is interposition? Well, for those who are well-read, interposition is when someone of authority stands between the people they're protecting and a higher authority. So like the sheriff tells the FBI or ATF, get out of here, this is my county. You can't take these people's firearms. The sheriff interposes. The Secret Service will jump in front of a bullet to protect the president or the vice president. That's interposition. But there's also a spiritual interposition where God's people are supposed to stand up and say, No, listen to Psalm 82, 1 through 4. Uh, I'll tell you a story and then we'll be done. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. 
He judges among the gods. That's little g. What he's talking about there is people in power. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend, that means vindicate the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Notice these action words. Free them. Stand up for them. Deliver them. That's you. That's me. We're to be interposing. That pastor in Calgary did exactly what he should have done. Pastor James Coates is doing exactly what he ought to do. Tony Spell in Baton Rouge, Louisiana is doing exactly what he ought to be doing. The question is, what will we do? So I want to close with this illustration and then we're out of here. It's a pastor from the War of Independence, George Duffield. He pastored the Pine Street Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There it is. In fact, that's the old building. Still there. Well, that's a prestigious church, and so he was delighted to become the pastor. But you realize that the first church in town is always the bigger one. Like First Baptist, always bigger. First Presbyterian. So I want to read to you this little, it's just one page, out of my book on the Black Robe Regiment. I want you to listen to what George Duffield did. Having received an invitation to speak at the famous First Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, he gladly accepted But when the designated Sunday evening came, Duffield arrived at the church only to discover that a number of the church's leaders who disliked his robust patriotism had locked the building so that he and the large crowd that had gathered were unable to enter. So I guess you turn around and go home. Oh no, undaunted, Duffield, preacher Duffield, and his audience began searching for another way into the building and finding a window they could pry open, lifted the preacher up and through it. Once inside the church, they unbolted the doors and the enthusiastic crowd fled inside, excuse me, filed inside to hear him preach. In the legendary story as recorded in the history of the First Presbyterian Church, so this is in the church history, Duffield was beginning his sermon... Word was working its way to Jimmy Bryant, a British magistrate in Philadelphia. Once Bryant learned that the patriot preacher was promoting his propaganda to a large crowd of rebels at First Presbyterian, he rushed to the church to stop the service. Hurrying into the building, he pushed his way through the crowd, down the aisle. Now just imagine this. He works his way and comes down the aisle. Duffield's up there preaching. And interrupted Duffield by declaring the gathering an illegal assembly. As Duffield paused at the interruption, so he stops preaching, Bryant began reading the Riot Act. Now, that had been written by the British to stop Christians. You know, we'll say today, well, he's reading him the Riot Act. No, it's the Riot Act is what it is. So Bryant begins to read the Riot Act out loud. Well... Robert Knox, a large man who was a member of the church and an officer in the American militia, rose and ordered Bryant to stop. Declaring that he would not, Bryant proceeded to read the Riot Act. With a louder and more commanding tone, Knox again demanded Bryant to cease. Bryant, disregarding this warning as well, continued to read the Riot Act. At this point, Knox began making his word toward the magistrate. Working his way through the crowd, Knox eventually reached Bryant and seizing him, dragged him down the aisle and thrust him through the doors of the church and outside. Surprised, infuriated, and greatly humiliated at his rough expulsion from the meeting, Bryant, wise enough to know his limits, wisely walked away. 
Duffield, seemingly unshaken by the whole escapade, once order had been restored, resumed his sermon to the great delight of the crowd. The following day, Pastor Duffield was summoned to appear before the king-appointed mayor to answer to the charge of aiding and abetting a riot. When the mayor demanded that Duffield supply bail for his release until trial, the pastor respectively, uh, respectfully refused, declaring his innocence and asserting his rights as a minister of Jesus Christ. Duffield insisted that rather than inciting a riot, he had been carrying out his legal responsibilities as a duly ordained minister of the gospel and that the only one guilty of inciting a riot was Mr. Bryant, the king's magistrate. Well, personally sympathetic to the pastor, the mayor explained that if he released him without charging him and demanding bail, it would be he who would find himself in prison instead of the pastor. Wanting desperately to avoid escalating the problem, the mayor offered to allow Duffield's many friends in the courtroom to help pay his bail. Respectfully, Duffield declined the offer. Flustered and growing increasingly concerned for his own welfare, the magistrate, the mayor, went as far as to offer himself to pay Duffield's bail. Once again, the pastor declined, stating that as a minister of Christ, he had broken no laws and that the only lawbreaker was Mr. Bryant, who interrupted a lawful Christian assembly. Well, the mayor was in a dilemma. Confident that if he locked up the pastor, not only would he have to deal with the opposition of the local citizens, but additionally, he would have to contend with the Paxton boys a volunteer militia some 100 miles away in Pennsylvania frontier who had already resolved to march to Philadelphia and free Duffield by force of arms if they had to. With no apparent options that would not precipitate a full-scale riot, the mayor decided to postpone his decision for a few days and allow Duffield to go free. In the end, with local sentiment decidedly in Duffield's favor and with the threat of insurrection spreading, the mayor determined to allow the incident to simply blow over and never required Pastor Duffield to appear before his court again. Rather than dampening his resolve, the incident invigorated Pastor Duffield and he returned to his own pulpit more vocal than ever. That's what standing up to a tyrant looks like. Friends, we may just be there.